0: From Podcast
1: One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Jonna Mendez, the former CIA chief of disguise, has written a book. It's called The Moscow Rules
0: how to comport yourself on the streets of Moscow because you are going to have surveillance stuck to you like glue and you know how do you how do you manage your day to day with that kind of uh, a team on you whether you're walking down the street or driving in your car whether you're in your apartment uh, talking to your wife or you're at work in the hallways mm-hmm. there's surveillance everywhere the Moscow rules were giving you some courage that you could persevere even with that
1: and on this program you also hear about Jana's role in Argo. That's right. You remember the movie? Well, she was a part of the real story. Her husband, Tony, orchestrated the escape of six American diplomats from the Canadian Embassy in Tehran, Iran, in 1980. Coming up on this edition of Target USA,
0: the National Security Podcast.
1: From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. If you've ever seen any James Bond movie, you know there is a character called Q in the movie. And Q essentially stands for quartermaster. He's the person that supplies all of the cool gadgets that Bond uses to make his daring escapes and to support his activities. Well, the CIA has its own. And on this program, we talk to the former Chief of Disguise. Her name is Jana Mendez.
0: I was representing the CIA at one point. Um, I was Chief of Disguise.
1: You say that so matter-of-factly, but um, there's nothing matter-of-fact about what you did. Would you tell us, just briefly characterize what it was that that title and that job included?
0: Uh, Being chief of disguise meant that you were responsible for a staff that was scattered around the world. Um, It was composed of two pieces. One was operational. That means people that were in the field working with our materials and the case officers. And the other piece, smaller but just as important, was the R&D part of our program, the research and development piece that uh, brought our materials and our technologies forward, always trying to create a a better product.
1: What were some of the products that you created?
0: What is a disguise product? Um, well, the hair goods that we worked with would be a product. We could use um, we could use genuine hair, which looked beautiful, but it was the same issue of of keeping it up, of taking care of it. If you walked in the rain in a real hair wig, it would look like you'd been in the shower. Um, so there was that, and then there were all kinds of artificial uh, replicas of real hairs. Some of them more more realistic than others. Uh, Kanekalon was one that you could walk in the rain and shake your head, and just like your dog, you'd look you'd look just like you looked before it rained. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kinecolon, if you looked at it under various uh, light sources, might uh, look, look um, alarming. Mm-hmm. It might look like you had a, a, a glowing <laughs> orb on your head. So you had to be very careful where that was going to be used. We were always looking for, for uh, hair goods that would, that would act just like normal hair in, in many circumstances. As far as um, we made overhead masks, those were what what are commonly referred to as stunt double masks Mm
1: -hmm.
0: out in L.A. Those were made from latex. They didn't animate. They didn't move. They weren't meant to move. They were just meant to change a person's ethnicity or gender um, from a distance. Mm -hmm. They were very effective. They were very uncomfortable. You couldn't wear them in a hot climate, in a a really... um, humid environment, you would just think you were going to melt. Maybe you were. Yeah. So we were always looking at materials for our masks to see where we could take it. Could we find something that, that animated? Um, could we find something that breathed? Could we find something that we could finish in a way that it would have that translucent look that, that skin has? Yeah. Reflect, right, reflect light the same way.
1: So based on the circumstances under which we met, I'm assuming you achieved that quite spectacularly with that particular mask that you were hoping to achieve. Is is that correct? Tell us, tell us, tell our audience about that story. The the mask that does move.
0: Um, You know, we weren't talking about masks at all for many, many years. It was actually about a year ago that we were able to discuss mask technology kind of funny because everyone always assumed we had masks, but we could just never address it. Um, getting a mask to animate is critical because if it, if it doesn't animate, there are very few uses for it. But if you can get a mask that you can interact with other people wearing it, um, the door is just wide open. Mm-hmm. So our technology came from Hollywood. It came from uh, some special effects people. Some makeup people who had done a lot of work on materials. Uh, there was a little bit of cyber involved, and in, in that you would um, you could scan a person three hundred and sixty degrees. Wow! So you didn't need the actual person sitting in your uh, in your lab for hours and hours. You could you could work on a, a replica of that person. Um. So. When we started producing, when we started having a production run, that's a, dis, that's a disarming term, uh, a, a production <laughs> run, maybe one a week, but when we started producing them, uh-huh. um, I got the first one. I was chief of disguise at the time, so they made for me an African-American male huh. face. Wow. It looked good. It looked very good. It looked so good that I, I briefed the head of CIA. And he said, this was Bill Webster, he said, let's go to the White House. Let's show the president. I said, I can't wear this to the White House. I can't walk it. I can't talk it. I can't maintain it. It's just pretty to look at. So he said, we'll make another one. So we did. Uh, Mask number two did go to the White House. Um, We went down early. I went in with no identification, with no paperwork whatsoever, my my uh, bona fides were that I was with Judge Webster and he was head of CIA.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we went in, we got stuck outside of the Oval Office because there was um, a meeting inside was going long. And so we were standing around, they were all telling jokes and laughing. I was chewing on a pencil, laughing. I was in agony.
1: <laughs> <laughs> why, why?
0: Because you get a little paranoid when you're wearing this stuff. I mean, you, I suppose. and this this was kind of a first... This was uh, the first serious taking this thing out in public.
1: Okay. And and so who was the president at the time?
0: George H.W. Bush.
1: And he was a former director of the CIA. So I'm assuming that a part of the reason for going and showing um, was one to, since obviously he was the person that the CIA answered to, he would see what you were up to. But also, he's uh, would be a very sympathetic audience to what it was that you had to achieve in your in your in your daily uh, work role. Is you're, that correct?
0: You're exactly right. Uh, all of those things led into the decision to go down there. Uh, there was also the fact that we had given him some disguises while he was chief of CIA. I don't even know what he used them for, but they were very simple. It was the kind of disguise that was a wig. And maybe a mustache and some glasses. Mm-hmm. So I went armed with pictures of him in disguise, reminding him of what we used to do. And, and by the way, we still do those things. And then I said, oh, wow. uh, "I'm here to show you the the most recent innovation in disguise." And he said something like, "Well, let's let's see it." And I said, "You're looking at it, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna take it off and let you see how it." how it works. And he said, no, 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 don't take it off. He got up from behind that huge desk and walked around, walked all the way around me.
1: The Resolute Desk, I think it's it called. Was
0: the, that's what it was called. I didn't know it then. The Resolute Desk. He went back and he sat down and he said, okay, do it, take it off. And so I peeled off my face. Um, there's a photographer in the room the whole time Ka-ching, ka-ching, I think she probably is always there taking pictures of meetings throughout mm-hmm. the day. Um, there was a circle of men that I was sitting with. It was Brent Scowcroft. It was Bob Gates. It was John Sununu. Judge Webster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Me, I'm leaving out someone. Doesn't matter. Um, when I took my face off, John Sununu, who hadn't been paying any attention because he was furiously writing whatever it was he was going to say, when. It was his turn. Well, he was shocked. He was, he was startled. <laughs> I thought he was going to lose his balance. Fell out of his chair. chair. He was not a small man. Um, so we talked for a few minutes. I explained to the president, you know, this was the most recent product that we'd come up with. He, uh, he sat behind his desk and he twinkled. I didn't, I didn't know that this pres- president was so personable. Yeah. I was the first one to leave the room. I went out to the secretary's office where um, there was that little dog Millie and her puppies. Yes,
1: the bush dog. So Millie. I'm
0: playing with the puppies, and the door opens, and here comes the photographer. And she came over and she said, "What did you do?" And I said, "Sorry, I can't tell you.
1: It's classified." <laughs> you missed it.
0: <laughs> Ten years later, I got a, I got a copy of the photo.
1: Oh, okay.
0: It's hanging in my library today, but. Okay. They've airbrushed the mask out. I was holding it up so the president could see it, mm-hmm. and someone has removed it. So it just looks like I'm lecturing the president oh. about something really important.
1: Well, I'm sure that was, funny photo. I'm sure that was a great moment. You're here because you've written a book, and this book is called "The Moscow Rules: The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War." Why did you write this book?
0: I wrote it with my husband. This is his fourth book, mm-hmm. his last book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had talked about this for years, about putting this book together. The thing that Tony had done is he wrote down these rules. They they had never, he didn't invent them. He didn't make them up. These were always the rules, but they were just kind of floating around. We all knew them. Anybody going on an assignment to Moscow knew these rules before they got there as part of the training. Um, Things like don't look back. You're never alone. Uh, Things like trust no one. It gets more specific. Mm -hmm. Trust your gut. Um, How to comport yourself on the streets of Moscow because you are going to have surveillance stuck to you like glue. And, you know, how do you, how do you manage your day to day, with that kind of um, a team on you, whether you're walking down the street or driving in your car, whether you're in your apartment, uh, talking to your wife, or you're at work in the hallways. Mm -hmm. There's surveillance everywhere. The Moscow rules were giving you some courage that you could persevere even with that element of surveillance. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, um, we we should point out who Tony Mendez is, for those who aren't familiar. Uh, and this is in no way to trivialize the tremendous contribution that he made to this nation uh, and uh, to the world in many respects. But most folks would probably be familiar with him from the movie Argo.
0: That's that's right. Had it not been for George Tenet, the head of CIA at the time, uh, the world would never have even heard of Argo. It would have been one of those operational stories that's in the vault, never to see the light of day.
1: Now summarize what the Argo story is.
0: The Argo story was um, a tale of how Tony went into Tehran, really in the early days of the Iranian Revolution, when our American embassy had been overrun by I don't know how you do air quotes on a mic, but you just did by, it. <laughs> by students, um, they took all of the members of our embassy hostage. They kept them in the, at the end of the day, they kept them for 444 days, but six got away. Six got away and nobody knew they were gone. And they ended up with the Canadian ambassador and his deputy, John Snowden. And they kept them for 84 days, but it was starting to close in on those six. They were receiving phone calls. The word was getting out that there were six and that they might be in this Canadian um, situation. So Tony was in charge of going to get them, of coming up with a story that would um, allow him to go into a country in the middle of a revolution and to exit through the commercial airport with a team of people, it made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. But he concocted a tale that made it make sense. He he disguised and documented them as a Canadian film crew on location looking for Bazaar to make their movie in. Uh, it was far-fetched. Not as far-fetched as the movie made it seem, but it was far-fetched. And mm-hmm. it worked, and he, um, he got them out.
1: Mm-hmm. It's basically the story. That's a remarkable story. And I've seen the movie, and I've read the story, and I knew about the story before the movie. And um, it's still remarkable to me. But what's more remarkable is that you are sitting here today with us telling the story because you played a key role in that.
0: I don't know. I'm, I, was, I was back at headquarters. I, I, didn't, I didn't take a step out of the door. There was a small group of us that knew what was going on. We held our breath. hmm This thing could have come undone at any moment, Mm -hmm. but it was the best approach they could come up with. Mm -hmm. It was such an odd cover to use Hollywood as a cover. I don't think any intelligence officer had done that before, and so no one was looking for it. Um, It was a cover that these six hostages who were scared to death, and they were not intelligence officers, could could wrap their arms around in the couple of days' training he gave them so that they could, if they were challenged in the airport, they could they could meet that challenge. They could. The script writer could talk about the script. The location um, transportation manager could talk about, you know, what they were bringing in to make this movie. Everyone had their story. They were good to go with it. They performed brilliantly. And we still see them today. My husband passed... In January, and
1: I'm so sorry about that. It's a Thank you, true treasure for this nation. Thank
0: you. Well, out of six of them, we had two at the celebration. Two, I believe, are still in Africa. The other two are in um, in Washington State. We heard from everyone, mm-hmm. but over the years, we we've seen them again and again and again, mm-hmm. and we get these lovely notes thanking him for saving their lives all the time.
1: Yeah. That is an amazing story. And I'm so grateful that you're here sharing it with us. And back to this book. Why do you think this book is so important now? Because I believe it is. And when you look at it, when you just thumb through the book, uh, and actually sitting down to read it, I'm sure it's one one of those books that you cannot put down. just came out on the 21st of May. Is that correct? 21st, yes. And um what what's what's the what's the part of this book that you most uh, liked or enjoyed uh, writing about?
0: Uh, for me, what I liked being able to do is pull some of these stories forward that involved our office, the Office of Technical Service, which was always compared to the Q in James Bond. We were the gadget people. We would, if we didn't have it, we'd make it, we'd invent it, we'd, but we'd, we'd give you a tool to let you get your job done. Part of the book is about some of the incredible people that we worked with who did um, amazing things. One of, the, one of the chapters is called Genius is Where You Find It. We found genius more times than, than, uh, than you would expect. We had people working with us who went on to do remarkable things. We had a man who, who worked with us in, in terms of batteries. He spent a lifetime working in batteries, but he ended up being one of the main people who helped save the Hubble telescope when it was on its deathbed, yeah. and it was an issue of batteries, among other things, and George Methley was, was part of that team that kept it going. Uh, there was a uh, there was another man named Paul Howe, who designed um, a tiny, tiny film camera, that was my account for many, many years. A camera is so small you could put it in a, a writing pen. You could put it in a lipstick. You could put it in anything. You could also sit at your desk and very quietly, with one hand, uh, photograph secret documents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, at the end of the Cold War, the general consensus was that that tiny camera had collected more significant intelligence than any of our satellite systems. Oh, my gosh. Satellite systems show you what's in place, what's there, what's going on right now, which was interesting. But what we really wanted to know was what what are their plans and intentions? What are they going to do? We wanted the people in the meeting, or we wanted the minutes of the meeting or even we'd take the agenda for the meeting just to see how they were thinking. Mm-hmm. So if you think today, you know what I think all the time is, I hope we have the modern equivalent of my tiny camera. I hope we have it in somebody's pocket. I hope that they are inside of the North Korean planning meetings. I hope we have somebody in the Politburo with one of my tiny cameras so that we can see what's, what's being developed, what's coming next
1: so do you think they are in these places i know that's a really difficult question for you a former (laughs) chief of disguise to answer
0: well first of all i can't know because i'm not there but i have an interesting historical perspective and i would believe that in one form or another we are able to to um to obtain this information, you know, if you look at the Mueller report, mm-hmm. uh, if you just look at um, his team's ability to go inside of the GRU—that's the, the Soviet military intelligence component—and go, he—he he basically Mueller called out the names of all of the GRU officers that were working on the hacking. Mm-hmm. He called out their names. He called out their code names. And there are other code names, he could basically tell you who was sitting next to who was sitting next to who. When they can get down today to that granular level of detail in something like the Mueller report, I believe that we could probably seuse out a little bit more information. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is a fantastic book, um, but, you know, and, and it's, it's about a big, heavy topic. It's about some very serious work here. Um, And it's about work that it takes a special person or a group of people to perform. And clearly, you know, you were one of those people uh, being chief of disguise for a number of years at the CIA. But I think an interesting part of this story is how you got to that particular position and it wasn't necessarily through some kind of pedigree. You had to do some difficult, um, you had to do it, your, you had to get there yourself. You know, nobody just opened the door and said, hey, you, you've been groomed or prepared for this. Here it is. You had to actually go do something that nobody expected you to do.
0: Well, that's absolutely true. Back in the day when I, when I started working for the CIA, um, if you applied as a woman, it really didn't matter what your degree was in. They would put you in that typing pool. If you couldn't type, they probably wouldn't hire you. Most women that I knew professionally started in the typing pool. Mm-hmm. Then the job was, well, how do you get out of here? You know, what, what's, where, where's the exit? I went out of this place and everybody I knew got out of the typing pool. We all went our, our different ways, um, I was a really good secretary, which probably kept me in the pool longer than I should have. But I I was the top secretary for this group of a thousand people. And
1: that's a really interesting point, Jonna, is that you were a secretary. Oh, yeah. And where did you end up? You ended up running the the gadgets unit. (laughs) Okay. And that is a remarkable accomplishment.
0: Well, it is, but it's also, I I have to point out as we go along, it's also indicative of CIA's
1: mm, ability to elevate and recognize and elevate talent. Maybe They
0: will let you, they will give you a shot at whatever. And if you can do it, they will let you do it. And you can, that's the way that you can move around in CIA. As a secretary, I was going to leave. I was, (laughs) there was no work. I was bored. The only way up was if my boss got an assignment, and I went with him. That was no good. So I was going to go work at the Smithsonian. They put me instead in a photo course. They knew I was bored. And they knew I liked photography. I loved photography. This was flying in airplanes with long lenses. and oh, It was, it was one of the best days of my life, the first day of those photography courses. So I m- morphed into a photo operations officer using those little tiny cameras, traveling around the world, training people how to how to collect intelligence with those cameras. And that was going splendidly. I was in a man's world. I was a woman, but I was every bit as good as the men. The men were RIT graduates. They all went to film school. Well, they could talk about the toe curve of the emulsion on the film. But if a roll of really important film came into our labs, and it was right at lunchtime, mm-hmm. they would hand me the film. The guys would go to lunch, um, so, I did, I did a good job in that photo area, and I ended up uh, on the other side of the world one summer for three months filling in for, for someone, and it was like there was a color explosion in my head. I went from black and white to color photography and my personal stuff, came back to Washington and asked for an assignment there. I said, I'd like to work out of that particular base. They said, there is no photo job there. There's just a disguise job. I said, "So make me a disguise officer," and it took two years, and um, they did that. They did that. That was under the uh, under the tutelage of a man named Tony Mendez, mm-hmm. who I had no idea I was going to marry someday. <laughs> I always tell him I would have been so much nicer had I known that.
1: Had you known that? Yep. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yep. All right. Well, you did marry him, and you made history. And um, that history continues as this book comes out. As I look at it, there's a chapter in here that's kind of caught my eye. It's called Chapter 6. It's like float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. It was early evening in Moscow, 1977, but it was also early in May. And so the twilight had begun to stretch out late. The sun would not set until 930 p.m. It was a fine evening. Pick it up from there for us
0: well that story was an interesting story um in the in the book we're talking about why do people why do people spy um they spy for money they spy for compromise they spy for reasons of ego and um the best one or maybe the worst one there's always a little bit of revenge in there (laughs) and this was out in moscow talking about um the beginning of this chapter talks about a terrible fire that was in moscow we had an ambassador who was at a reception i think at the romanian embassy he shows up back at his own embassy because he's been called by the marine guards to say our embassy is burning down and so ambassador tune his name was he was standing out on the sidewalk in full black tail white tie regalia watching the moscow um fire department come screeching in and put the ladders and going up. And then he started noticing that there was a second wave of firefighters coming in in much better looking firefighter outfits. And this caught his eye. And he all of a sudden became suspicious of the second group of firefighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out later that his suspicions were well-founded. First group was real firefighters. The second group was KGB but up in the embassy itself was our chief of station Gus Hathaway
1: mm-hmm.
0: who stood there in his burberry coat with a handgun guarding his cia station mm-hmm. and one of the marines went up and said sir the ambassador has said that you you have to leave now and uh, <laughs> gus hathaway i probably couldn't repeat exactly what he said to the marine
1: this is a podcast it's not radio <laughs> <laughs>
0: He said, there is no, you know what, no way that I am leaving and, you know, they're not coming in my station. And he stayed there throughout the fire. He didn't, you know, he didn't die. He got the intelligence star for doing that. He became a famous, he was already famous when it happened. But it was um, a CIA uh, approach to the the KGB, like nice try guys, but they didn't get in our safes. They didn't get our classified information.
1: And that, folks, is why you have to read this book. The Moscow Rules: The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War. Antonio and Jana Mendez, with Matt Baglio, best-selling authors of Argo. You know, as I have thought about the way when we met, and you know all of the things that led up to your uh, uh, your your career, and throughout your career, and then to this book, and then us meeting at the spy museum which is where we met at the opening of the new spy museum and just the way you regaled me and others with your story and uh, the accomplishments that are on display there i can't help but wonder knowing what we know about what you were able to do and what existed during the cold war and looking at what's taking place between the us and russia now um are we going to win this one this time?
0: You know, this one doesn't really seem to have a name. Um, <laughs> I could make up a, a very quick sketch of a case that the Cold War never really ended. Yeah, that it just simmered down, and it's been at a low, a low to medium a simmer for some time. I'm in the middle of Ambassador McFall's book, mm-hmm. Michael McFall. He was ambassador, I think, 2012, 2014, and he's describing. Um, the harassment that he and his family, this is the ambassador, yeah. try and imagine the CIA station. They, they would, his wife would go out to some event. She'd come back to the embassy where her husband was ambassador, and they would not let her in the gates. They would make her stand outside in, you know, 15 degree weather while they slowly, tediously, they'd examine her documents. It was nothing but harassment. They mm-hmm. were following his kids to school. There was a, The book opens with an incident in 2016 where an American diplomat gets out of a that's right taxi at the entrance to his embassy, uh, three in the morning, and a KGB guy just bursts out of a guard shack and beats the living daylights out of him, beats him to a pulp, even as they, they slowly slid across the pavement and into the embassy itself, into the lobby of the American embassy, this guy is still beating him up. They're on American soil at that time. Um, the American officer was medevaced out with a broken clavicle and God knows what else. That's in 2016. At that time, the presidential campaign yeah. was, in, was in full swing. Yeah. So this stuff has been going on for a long, long time.
1: Do you get the sense that we're still able to pull this one out considering you know, the advantage that you and the folks like you gave us back during the earlier times, are we in a position to to win this, one this time? Whatever it is, whatever you call it, um, is it, are, cause the thing, that, the reason I asked this question is because, you know, the Russians, you know this very well, probably better than anybody, are a nation of chess players. And everything they do is plotted and planned out well in advance. and. My question is, how many moves behind are we?
0: Well, and Putin is their chess master, and he is a KGB graduate. You know, he was—he was not that successful as a KGB uh, officer, as a career officer. He didn't—he mm-hmm. didn't rise up into the ranks suddenly. He kind of peeled off and became mayor of Leningrad. So while he is trained in, in intelligence tactics, I don't know that he was ever that clever at using them. Mm-hmm. I think the thing on, on, on the tabletop right now is technology. Um, well, we were a technical office. Technology if toys are us, uh, technologies was really us. <laughs> That's, we, we invented a lot of the technology even being used today.) Mm-hmm. Everyone has caught up though. It's kind of, it's out in the commercial market now. We are all able to do the same kinds of things. I think, I think from my point of view, the piece of it that I'm not sure how it's going to play out is this identity transformation Mm -hmm. with disguise. We, we could very realistically, very quickly change you in every way, your gender, your ethnicity, Everything about you, we could change it. We could, pre- we could present you at a, at a desk with a passport or whatever that had your picture in it. But that's not quite how it's working now. They, they're not so interested in that piece of paper. They're interested in your phone
1: mm-hmm.
0: that you're going to walk up to that desk with, that they can probably query remotely while you're standing there. Mm-hmm. That piece of the identity transformation, I don't know how that works. Uh, I I was in the CIA just last Friday,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we talked very briefly. This is not part of what I need to know anymore, so I have no need to know. Mm-hmm. But clearly, it's a it's a huge problem, and and that's where a lot of the energy is going. Mm-hmm. That's where some of the solutions lie. I believe that um, that every time we see technology that be, that is an obstacle to us, we have always been able to turn it around and use it offensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some very, very clever people working there. Mm-hmm. I have to believe that- um, that
1: We'll find a way.
0: They'll find a way.
1: John Mendez, you are tremendous. This book is tremendous as well. Um, anything about this book that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that you'd like to share before we end up?
0: Uh, we wanted to tell the stories We wanted to get the rules out on paper. We wanted to call out some of our old colleagues. uh, And those things have all been accomplished in the book. I think the larger overarching goal was to open up this profession, this technical end of spying, this gadget part of it, so that the public could take a look at what we're looking for, what kind of people we needed, how we use them and what a career there might've looked like. We've highlighted some of our stars. <laughs> We've removed the ones that were not stars because you don't need to uh-huh. read about them. Um, I would hope that this would generate some applications to the, to the CIA of people who find the, the stories interesting and the work interesting and, and who might like to consider a career working uh, for their government, um, making a difference, doing something that matters, and sometimes actually impacting, you know, what's going on in the world. What's better than that?
1: Yeah. You know what? I have to say this, and I don't say this in any way to disparage anyone, um, but, you know, you are a role model for all of us uh, just through your work ethic and through what you accomplished by just never giving up and continuing to push into work. But I have to say uh, uh, a young girl or young woman listening to this has got to find the, has got to find some significant inspiration in, in a career as, 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 as difficult and, but as rewarding as the one that you exactly. embarked on.
0: Yeah, exactly. It is, it is rewarding. Um, years after, you stop doing it. When, when Tony and I were working at the time that we retired, we retired about three or four years apart. You know, the average age of our retirees, men, because they were all men, mm-hmm. the average lifespan of our retirees was 18 months
1: huh.
0: because so many of our people treated the work as a calling. They considered the agency to be a family, Mm-hmm. They thought this was their life's work. And they a lot of our men didn't have any outside activities. They didn't have any friends outside of the agency. They had no hobbies. Tony always said that working at the CIA was like drinking from a fire hose. And he said that retiring was like jumping off a moving train. It was tough. So we had to train our people how to retire. Mm-hmm. Then, then things changed. But it really is a totally absorbing um, field if you if you are um, if you've got the skills and if you've got the focus and if you really want to change things or help things get better, mm-hmm. make a difference. Do something that matters. Come work for the CIA.
1: John mendez thank you for spending some time with us. I loved it. You know that. That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next program, cyberspace. Diplomats are now getting involved in it. Everybody has noticed that uh, cyberspace is a new domain of uh, uh, both civilian and military activities. And uh, the diplomats are now talking about what kind of um, behavior is allowed or not allowed by the governments in cyberspace. Haley timur Clark the Ambassador-at-Large for Cybersecurity for Estonia, arguably the world's leading authority on cyber. Thank you, as always, for listening. I deeply appreciate the opportunity to share with you today. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Also, Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Podcast. And sign up for the Inside the Skiff newsletter, which talks about all the things we talk about on this program and more national security topics at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA,
0: the National Security Podcast.
1: Coming soon to Podcast One, the Gigi Podcast with Rick Fox, Jace Hall, and Todd Roy. Log on to see the world
0: behind the esports you love and find out what good game really means from the trio
1: who's taken the business by storm, including the three-time NBA champion behind Team Echo Fox. Download new episodes of the Gigi Podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.